Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, as part of a New Directions in Irish Studies session, a paper by Dr. Ava Walsh of the School of English, University College Cork. Dr. Walsh's paper was entitled Oscar's Shadow, Wild, Homosexuality and Modern Ireland. Thank you very much, Noreen, and um, thank you very much to Marnie for inviting me and to for facilitating uh, today's uh, session. I'm delighted to get a chance to come and talk to you about uh, the work that I've been doing over a number of years on Oscar Wilde. So, what I want to talk about really is the project. Um, uh, it all began for me really with uh, something I'd read, and a writer, a theorist and a critic whose work I admire greatly, Alan Sinfield. And he had written uh, a book called uh, The Wild Century. And in The Wild Century, what Alan did was that he decided to trace the influence of Wilde as a public figure and a public presence in Britain uh, around the time of his trials and onwards into the 20th century. So the study really, and I suppose I wanted to define the kind of area I worked on, is cultural history and literary history. And I suppose I, I also, my degree was also in history, so I've been, and I've worked, I've written a biography, so I'm very interested in that kind of, the ways in which a writer's um, public persona becomes implicated in uh, public discourse around their writings, around their uh, um, identity, their indeed their nationality, which is important in Wilde, and more particularly I wanted to look at around the notion of their sexuality, how writers were perceived within public discourse and within, within a culture uh, in terms of their writings, their racial identity, their national identity, and their sexual identity or identities. And so therefore I wanted to, I was interested, I was thinking, well, if Alan Sinfield can sort of do this particular study and project, his point was, put very simply, that Wilde becomes the notion of a kind of deviant aesthete, that the idea of the the sort of... uh, the, the, the martyred figure, the pariah, the unspeakable, uh, becomes constructed from the wild trials. And that, in, in, in a sense, throughout the 20th century, ideas of the, the other, the sexual other, in fact, congregate around the discourses raised by the wild trials. So Oscar Wilde shapes the 20th century in Britain for the idea of the sexually other. And I, and I think he argues this very well. And wor- other work has been done elsewhere on the wild trials themselves and what they, uh, uh, how they raised a whole series of alarms and fears and debates around a sexual otherness. But what interests me mostly is thinking, well, how does that apply specifically to Ireland? And what kind of work had been done in Ireland? And that's the kind of the task that I set <coughs> myself. And in... Um, Another essay called I Seem It Is My Name That Terrifies Wilde in the 20th Century, Alan Sinfield makes this point. He says, 20th century uses of Wilde's name certainly have depended on simplifications, mistaken apprehensions, and downright falsehoods. 
However, the point is not Wilde's true identity, but the identity that the trials foisted on him. It is not who he is, but who we have made him to be. I want to suggest there is unfinished business here, that Ireland, as much as England or the United States, might claim the name of Wilde as gay icon. Now, that was written at the beginning of 2000. Uh, it was a paper that was given the centenary of Wilde's uh, deaths in, in Trinity, a paper that Alan Sinfield gave. And that really was my starting point. I really wanted to investigate what did Ireland make of Oscar Wilde. Particularly, I was interested and I wanted to pursue how in public discourse could the idea of Wilde's sin, crime, fate, sexuality be named or not named? What kind of existence did it have? We have a lovely picture of Wilde in stereo. We need a third one to make it the full Andy Warhol set. But anyway, <laughs> we have enough, enough of him there to show Oscar at his height of his success. So this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to investigate. So what I decided to do was I would take it from um, the trials themselves and look at the Irish newspaper and media accounts and reporting on the wild trials. And I know in your handout there, there's a link to uh, an essay that I published in Era Ireland, Ireland, which I've used as one of my chapters, uh, examining a number of the Irish newspaper accounts. And in uh, works like Michael Foldy's The Wild Trials or Ed Cohen's Walk on the Wild Side, there's been a great deal of uh, analysis of the British media's accounts of Wilde. And very simply and very clearly, Wilde, uh, it seems, and Wilde's fate and his sexuality and his crime and his trials, all of these things uh, provoked this witch hunt. And, and this has often been uh, um, uh, examined. So I wanted to see, was something similar happening in Ireland? Or indeed, what was happening in Ireland? And one of the contexts I wanted to look at really was, I wanted to, I did a survey of some of the Irish newspaper reports on the Wild Trial. But I also thought, well, you can't really look at that on its own. So I wanted to look at two other cases. So very usefully for me, uh, in my first chapter, I look at the Irish media accounts of the Wild Trials in conjunction with earlier accounts and later accounts of two other scandals where the idea of homosexuality became the sort of point of, of, of debate. One of them was what's, what's known as the Dublin Castle scandal uh, of um, 1888, and then the scandal of the Irish Crown Jewels, the so-called Irish Crown Jewels. There's kind of rather a sad amount of actual jewellery involved. It was just, I think... An, a, a decoration for, for the, the Order of St. Patrick and one or, one or two other baubles. I'm afraid it wasn't the, the, the treasury. The treasury of the Romanovs, as I had kind of hoped it had been in reading about it. But looking at the two, um, yes, the Dublin Castle scandal of 1884 and then the um, 1907 stealing of the Irish Crown jewels. So what I did is, I, in a sense, I placed the Irish media accounts of Wilde in conjunction, or in a sense, between these two. Now, just to summarise, in both cases of the uh, uh, Dublin Castle scandal and the Irish Crown Jewel scandal, what happened was that a, a number of media accounts uh, exist of, the, of uh, a particular uh, moment of scandal. 
In the Dublin Castle scandal, it was the idea that a number of men connected with Dublin Castle and with some of the officials there, including some of the officials involved with the postal system, were part of what seems to have been a group of gay men of various ages uh, who knew each other and had a, a, a kind of loose and, to some degree, undefined social circuit or connection. And what happens is that increasing nationalist uh, antipathy towards the administration in, the, in Dublin Castle seizes upon this idea of a kind of secret underground world of, of men who are homosexual. And this eventually uh, led to the trial. And as uh, Leon O'Brien has written, um, ugly reports have been in circulation for some time about the sexual perversions of some of the headquarters of Dublin of officers of Dublin Castle. Um, the Nationalist members of Parliament attacked Spencer and Trevelyan, the Dublin Castle administrators, and imputed them with the misdeeds of their employees. Tim Healy, the Nationalist politician, with typical sarcasm alleged that Spencer's services to the state had well entitled him to promotion and suggested that he should become the Duke of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, not unlike the wild case, this all came to a head when Gustavus um, Cornwall sued uh, William O'Brien for libel and then from there a whole series of arrests were made. Now there's been reasonable documentation on the Dublin Castle scandal but what I wanted to point out for my purpose is that the Irish uh, newspapers were unstinting in their homophobia. But as soon as the nature of the scandal hit the newspapers uh, because it was a group of men associated with British administration. There was a field day, an open day for attack upon them, amongst other things suggesting that, of course, what was going on was a foreign vice that never happened in Ireland. Obviously, someone from somewhere else came over and this is how it all happened. So the kind of xenophobia around that is also then echoed in 1907 with the disappearance of the Irish Crown Jewels, the investigation and the suggestion of a link between some of the men who were in charge and some of the men who may have been implicated in stealing it, all of whom were uh, connected through, again, a kind of uh, sort of social network. I, mean, I won't call it gay. I mean, that's ahistorical. But men who were connected to each other uh, uh, as lovers and as uh, connected in, uh, through, through what was eventually seen as the crime. So what happens in the middle of all this? What happens with Oscar Wilde and the Irish newspapers? Well, this is sort of one of the points that I wanted to make. One of the things I was interested in looking at was during the trials themselves, was any reference ever made to Wilde's Irishness? Because so many other elements of himself, his life, his personality, his writing, and his um, sense of being different and other... And I can only really find this is work done partly by Noreen uh, uh, Doody and her uh, work on uh, Wild in Ireland. And she's, she's brought my attention to this, that when Sir Edward Clark was summing up in the third trial, there was finally a reference to the idea of Wild as Irish. This was the first direct reference. I was curious to see in any of the uh, newspaper accounts whether... The attacks upon Wilde uh, were specific to him being other and different because he was Irish. But no. But interestingly, this plea for clemency, 
includes this, this, this reference to Wilde's Irishness. If upon an examination of the evidence you therefore feel it is usual to say that the charges against the prisoner have not been proved, then I am sure that you will be glad that the brilliant promise which has been <coughs> clouded by these accusations, the bright reputation which was so early clouded in the torrent of prejudice, which a few weeks ago was sweeping through the press, has been saved by your verdict from absolute ruin. And thus it leaves him, a distinguished man of letters and a brilliant Irishman, to live among us a life of honour and repute, and give, to give in the maturity of his genius gifts to our literature, of which he has given only the promise of his early youth. Now, a number of things I wanted to suggest there. First of all, the ways in which Clark is suggesting that a different code operates in judging Wilde. He lives amongst us. Now, this, this argument has been made about Wilde. Why did he sue? Why did he fall foul of, as it were, British justice? And this is something that comes up again. And why did he end up, in a sense, why did, his, uh, um, why did this sort of disaster overtake him? And that's partly this notion of him as outsider and other. That as a brilliant uh, um, writer of, within the, the school of English comedy of manners, Wilde's outsiderness meant that he could read the ways in which language denotes uh, the creation of social identities, particularly within London High Society. And therefore, like many of the men who wrote within that genre, like Goldsmith and uh, uh, Sheridan and Shaw and himself, their outsiderness meant that they could understand the codes by which outsiderness need, can then be integrated. But what Noreen Doody has suggested was that this also ties into the notion that Wilde can be considered as part of an earlier Anglo-Irish or feudal sort of identity, common in, uh, in, uh, in sort of perceptions of Ireland, that his sort of, his kind of Sir Lucius O'Trigger quality, the fact that he is uh, living amongst us, the fact that he is a brilliant Irishman, in a sense, it's a plea for mitigation. He doesn't understand the rules, he's outside the code, he's part of a kind of a, a different kind of system, one of which, of course, leads him to take a libel case against Queensbury, which ends up ruining him and, and, and ends up being a disaster. So this is one of the ways in which his Irishness begins, I think, already in the trials to operate. But the other thing I wanted to suggest is that whilst trial and his imprisonment and his sexuality all presented a problem for the Irish sources. But a problem to some degree that led to his disadvantage. Now, led to his advantage. Now, I didn't have a chance to work on Joseph Valente's new book, which came out after I'd finished uh, my book. But it's a very interesting book on figures like Parnell and others and the notion of manliness in perceptions of Irishness. And that within the colonial and post-colonial uh, constructions of Irishness, that for Irish men there was on the one hand a striving to be accounted Christian and manly, and for example he uses Parnell as an example of this the emphasis made on Parnell's demeanour his, uh, his looks, his stature his stance, his quietness and then after Parnell's fall his unmanliness and, and Joseph Lindley uses cartoons to show this kinds of difference, because to be manly was to be a Christian gentleman and to inhabit certain kinds of codes of restraint and uh, uh, self-possession. But to be an Irishman and to be in any way re a rebellious colonial subject undermined the idea of your manliness. You were unruly, 
So this conundrum, this paradox, was something that Joseph Valente talks about in relation to um, Parnell, in relation to Pierce's work around the idea of the Maquis of the, the, the Fenian warrior, uh, all of these kinds of things. Now, where does Wilde fit into all this? Well, what I'm going to suggest is that the Irish newspaper accounts of Wilde are discreetly sympathetic. And that there is an opportunity in the whole sort of spectacle of the Wilde trials in the Old Bailey for Irish sort of cultural discourse to reconstruct him in the light of this notion of, for example, the Anglo-Irish feudal gentleman. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But one of the things that most interested me in my study, and I think was particular around this time, is that while I would argue, and you may not agree with this, more than many other public figures at this time, lends himself to constant reinvention, partly because of the nature of his own writings, partly because of the, the way in which he always foregrounds the idea of self-fashioning, partly because his sexuality is something that creates a difficulty uh, as he's been constructed uh, um, by, by Irish accounts. And partly because, of course, Ireland from 1895, and I, I mean, I work right up to 2010, itself undergoes such a radical invention and reinvention and change. So one of, one of the broader things I'm going to, I've suggested in the book, and I'll show you a more specific example of this, is that Wilde's reputation and his presence in Irish culture fluctuates greatly, more than others. I can't see a parallel, and you may or may not agree with me, I can't see a parallel with Yeats or with Joyce or with many of the, the, political, many of the political figures, going back to Parnell or going on to others. And it seems to me that Wilde's absence and presence has a much greater fluctuation than any other figure that I can think of during this period, partly because of his writings, partly because of his sexuality, and partly because of the period in which he's been invented and reinvented. But let me show you a little bit, talk a little bit about this idea of, yeah, it's supposed to come out and then emerge like that, and it did. The Freeman's Journal was very interesting. I found a very long piece there, which I quote more extensively in the book. But I thought this was really interesting because it starts off... It's, Wilde has been sentenced. He's gone to prison. And everything is out there. And it starts off with really an account by the London correspondent saying, yes, well, I saw... You know, we've now discovered that Wilde is part of a festering circle of corruption. We think, oh, here we go. It's going to just be condemnation. And then we have this very interesting account of the author of the piece, the London correspondent of the Freeman's Journal, saying, well, I saw him on the night of the opening night of An Ideal Husband, and he saunters onto the stage, and he's smoking gasp, and he tells the audience that they have behaved themselves very well and that they have, they have performed their part beautifully. So there is this notion, this idea, this sense, again, of Wilde, this sort of Wilde's body inhabiting this sort of uh, a swaggering... Uh, um, um, sort of pose in a sense before he's caught and then uh, um, the correspondent says and I saw him in the, in the dock of the Old Bailey last week and he had, you know, he looked forlorn and he looked shrunken and he looked down I'm making some of this up but essentially his body had now been transformed into that of the penitent fugitive almost animal like cornered sort of uh, uh, um, uh, 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 figure that justice had found out so it seems to be following this very conventional notion of before his discovery, Wilde was, in a sense, his body inhabited this kind of arrogance, 
after his discovery, his body reflects a kind of terror and forlorn sense of, of, um, of um, kind of penitence and a sort of a disempowerment. But then it goes on to say, and this is the piece that I've given you there, and I won't go through it in great detail, it then turns into an argument about essentially the contrast between Irish and English justice and a contrast between the ways in which the Irish and English jury system work and the idea, I think, that the British system, the Old Bailey system, had this sense that its justice was perhaps more regulated. What's happening, I would argue, is that a process is taking place by which Wilde himself has been transformed through the Irish sources, starting the newspapers, from this potentially dangerous and destabilising figure of an Irishman who has transgressed sexually. And of course, this has been a disaster with Parnell, and you see this, for example, the same week you have the burning of Bridget Cleary, the, the trial that takes place, and the whole notion and the sense that, well, these are people preparing for home rule, but look at these sort of dangerous, primitive things that are happening. Something different happens with Wilde, and this is my argument. Wilde begins to be appropriated into the kind of codes of Anglo-Irish feudal honour and of the beleaguered Irish man or woman in the British court. And this becomes uh, um, potent, more and more potent, as it progresses. Um, the court constitution also had a piece which was, I thought, very interesting uh, about the idea of Again, all aware the trial of Wilde and Taylor say the sentence passed upon the prisoners is not a whit too severe. These persons are not called them privileged, describe the evidence as revolting. The sentence, as a matter of fact, is the most severe known to the law. It is not confinement only that might indeed be borne with equanimity, it is the complementary infliction of hard labour that sting the misery that de degradation exists. The interpretation of the term in prison covers all that is demoralising and crushing. Maximum of loathsome and humiliating labour to be borne by a system reduced to the thinnest and most rigid dietary to a point just above actual collapse. Such a life, even for two brief years, to a man of luxurious habits, crowds by a refinement of skilful pressure, all that is conceivable exacting toil and shameful degradation, supplemented by associating the scum of the earth, quite ready themselves to heap upon this particular criminal the unspeakable loathing aroused by his offence. A leper would not exchange places with Wilde. Again, a very interesting uh, uh, begins, it seems to begin with talking about the evidence, the trial, how revolting it is, not with too severe. Then the point is made, of course, that Wilde was given this, the, the maximum sentence. He served every day of that. Uh, he was sentenced to hard labour, and indeed enacted that hard labour. Several attempts were made for him, for appeals to him to get off on good behaviour, which failed. And, of course, it was expected that he would die within the year because a man brought up in, as a gentleman would not have been used to this labour, this food. But in fact, he did survive, not for very long, uh, and was released. So one of the things I'm suggesting is that Wilde's fate and his sexuality always features in these, uh, in these accounts. But in the two I've suggested, it then, as it were, is subsumed by a familiar um, condemnation of the inhumanity of the British system, 
the, over, the, the, the fact the sentence is too severe, or the trial by jury as to whether or not uh, uh, it, was, it worked. So this is one of the things that's starting to happen, uh, even at, as the trials are being reported. Now, I'm not suggesting that Wilde saw himself as an Irish rebel or an Irish patriot. And also, I, Lucy McDermott has written a very good essay on this subject, where she really says, this just doesn't work. Wilde doesn't fit in. He's not part of the tradition of the, of, you know, he doesn't fit in to the tradition uh, of the Irish man or woman beleaguered in a British court and, and making, you know, the speech from the dock. And for example, his speech of the love that dare not speak its name, you know, seeing it as one of the great political speeches uh, of an Irish man in, in a court doesn't work, partly as Lucy McDermott says, because of course it's not true. The love that dare not speak its name is not platonic. He's going to court because uh, going to prison because it's not platonic. But it is, it is as uh, Edward Clark is trying to suggest, a plea by which he tries to transmute the love that dare not speak its name, the hidden other love, through the realm of art and the aesthetic to justify, contain, and desexualize it. Now, Wilde suggests, of course, art as a way of sort of desexualizing his crime. Though he does say afterwards, uh, in a letter to Robbie Ross, he says something that uh, a patriot is goes to prison for loving his country, and I'm, I went to prison because I loved men, and I'm like a patriot. So he makes a sort of parallel, and there's an, an idea that he's beginning to reconstruct himself as a sexual rebel and as a kind of a martyr. Uh, um, Auden called him St. Oscar, the first martyr of the first martyr of the Homitern. Um, but what I want to look at is something else. The ways by which Wilde now begins to offer to other Irish writers, for example, a particular kind of paradigm, which is that he occupies a place around, for example, the idea of Anglo-Irish or Protestant pride and rebellion and of the necessity or the possibility of art as uh, something uh, uh, sacrilegious and therefore redemptive. The idea of art as transgressive. So Wilde begins to offer to other writers, some of whom knew him, some of whom didn't, a particular mode of being. Also, therefore, his sexuality can be contained or, in fact, constructed in that way. Not necessarily by these other writers, and that's the point I want to make. Joyce, Shaw, Augusta Gregory, um, Yeats, none of them, except Shaw to some degree, were interested in, in any way problematising his homosexuality. Shaw says, yes, I don't like it, but that's my problem, that's not Wilde's. I have a repugnance to homosexuality, but I think it's not normal for, for me to be repugnant towards it. Yeats and the others, as we'll see, have other, other ways of reading him. But one of the things is that there's this brief moment in the years after Wilde's trial, indeed after his death, right up to about 1914, where Wilde is, and I take the phrase from uh, Margot Norris, Wilde is nationalised. And that then disappears. That there's a moment where, for a number of writers... Wilde represents a particular version of Irish the aesthetic, rebellion, outcastness, outsiders. 
It's not available for all. For example, the Parnell scandal has alienated many who wish to see an Irish man who has disgraced himself through sexuality uh, as any part of the, the, the sort of discourse of Irish, nas- Irish uh, uh, nationalism. But for a number of writers, there is a possibility there. And I'll just move on. Yes. One of the most important is James Joyce. Now, there are a great many parallels uh, uh, and influences there, and a lot of work has been done and continue, continue to be done on Wilde's influence on Joyce and on others, uh, Joe Valente in his book uh, uh, Queer Joyce and many others. And we know, for example, that uh, Joyce was reading the picture of Dorian Gray when he was writing Push of the Artist's Young Man and wrote it uh, to his brother Stanislaus about it and um, understood what he felt was at its centre. In an essay uh, written uh, for um, the newspaper in um, Trieste, there was a production of uh, Richard Strauss's opera uh, Salome uh, coming to Trieste, and Joyce wrote an essay on Wilde called Oscar Wilde, the Poet of Salome. And that really is an identification of his influence. Now, Joyce was only 13 during the trial, as he wouldn't have known him. Uh, but as a younger writer, uh, Wilde becomes an influence on him. And he says, Wilde's condemnation of the English people arose from many complex causes, but it's not the simple reaction of a pure conscience. Anyone who follows closely the life and language of men whether in soldiers' barracks or in the great commercial houses, will hesitate to believe that all of those who threw stones at Wilde were themselves spotless. What Dorian Gray's sin was, no one says and no one knows. Anyone who has recognised it uh, has committed it. Now, Wilde, uh, Joyce is taking that from Wilde himself. He wrote a letter to the, the, I think it was the Scots, St James Gazette or the Scots Chronicle, to saying that very thing. Like, if you're condemning my book and you're seeing something in it, well, you're the one that's, in a sense, reading it. So one of the things that Joyce is doing is turning upon what he sees as the kind of uh, the, the, the panic around, the homosexual panic around Wilde, turning against the society, indeed, the homosocial society that attacks him, soldiers' barracks or the great commercial houses. But he goes on in the same essay to say that, in fact, Wilde is the prophet of sin. And that for, for Joyce... Wilde was an important enabling figure as an Irish writer because at the heart of his writing and indeed of his fate and of his life is this redemptive, transgressive uh, um, uh, doctrine and while uh, Joyce uses as a religious term as that uh, uh, sin, the notion of uh, redemptive sin. Now, another important figure in fact this is a crucial figure in this nationalising of Wilde is Yeats. Yeats knew Wilde very well, in fact knew his family very well, and Yeats behaved extremely well during the trial when many others deserted Wilde. Yeats tried to get a, a petition up for, for of getting Irish men and women to write to try and, and, and have leniency for, for uh, Wilde. Uh, Wilde and his wife and mother had all been very helpful and kind to the young Yeats when he came to Dublin. In fact, Yeats came for a Christmas dinner to the Wilde household. Very kindly, they invited him. And to thank them, he told ghost stories to their children, their two boys. The result, neither of them could sleep for the night. He terrorised them. Um, I'm sure they enjoyed that too. But anyway, so 
in his autobiographies, he talks about this idea of uh, um, the important element of the transgressive and wild and how it, in fact, enables his work. I've never doubted that, for an instance, he made the right decision and that he owes that decision half his renown. Tragedy awoke another self, the rage and contempt that filled the crowds in the street and all men and women who had an overabundant normal sexual instinct. Again, like Joyce, uh, he's refracting back the condemnation and the panic on Wilde against a society that, that condemns him. But this, I think, is very interesting. I heard later, from who I forget now, that Lady Wilde had said, if you stay, even if you go to prison, you will always be my son. It will make no difference to my affection. But if you go, I will never speak to you again. Now, this is a really important element in the Wildian legend and creation of Wilde, Oscar the Irish Rebel. This is the only source I could find, there may be others. Yeats would have known Willie Wilde very well, uh, Wilde's older brother, and uh, Jane Wilde, Speranza, uh, their mother. And it's possible that this t- story was told to him by one of the members of the family. But the question has always been asked, why after the collapse of the second trial, when Wilde was released, went home, and he would have known that a, a warrant for his arrest was being issued. The trial ended at something like one o'clock in the afternoon, and at half five he was then arrested. He had three or four hours where Wilde could have, as apparently 300 men did that night, take the train to Dover and the boat to Calais, and where, thanks to Napoleon, uh, you couldn't go to prison for the, what Wilde was eventually going to go to prison for. But in fact he didn't, and is in the John Betjeman poem... Uh, uh, Wilde sat drinking seltzer and hock, whatever that is, and reading a yellow book, or the yellow book, it's not quite clear which, and waited three or four hours, and then finally was arrested, put on trial in prison for two years, and then, in a sense, the disaster began. Often it's wondered, why didn't he, why didn't he run? Why didn't he go? This story has, in fact, fixed around the idea of Wilde's connection with Anglo-Irish feudal honour, and more importantly, it also connects with the uh, hang on, I'm just going to go on to something here, yes, that's Speranza herself, looking like well, ever the, the, the inspirational figure that she was the connection with, with Jane Wilde is an important one, because Wilde as we know wrote very little about Ireland whereas his mother and father both were his father had been an antiquarian, a historian, um, archaeologist, folklore collector. And his mother, most importantly, was nationalist poet, essayist, and again, also folklore collector. In fact, when Wilde went to America first as a young man, he was billed as son of Speranza. And she had been involved in a very famous trial of the nation where she attempted to take... Um, Authors came authorship of a poem that would have landed her in prison. As a young woman, she had written a poem, a call to, to arms, a call to revolution. The editor of the nation uh, was arrested, put on trial, and she sat in the body of the court and several, several times stood up attempting to say, it is I, I wrote the poem. And she was hushed, apparently, by the, everyone around her saying something very loudly that the judge couldn't hear, so she wasn't arrested. So this legend of Speranza as a figure of nationalist opposition in a courtroom then accretes to the story of Wilde in the dock in, uh, in, in, um, 
in the Old Bailey. Whereas, in fact, whilst otherness, and this is from Michael Foldy's book, while it represented a frightening constellation of threats in which he conflated all these foreign disparate elements and associations, he represented foreign vice, foreign art, and indirectly the legacy of foreign rulers. Thus, when the newspapers attacked Wilde and condemned his foreign vice, they were expressing their xenophobic fear of foreigners and foreign influence, their hatred of useless and parasitic aristocracy, and their intolerance of useless artists and for anyone who actively tried to subvert the status quo. Now, the foreignness being referred to there is French. In fact, during his writing life, the otherness that Wilde represented was in fact French decadence and French literature. Uh, he had spent his honeymoon in Paris where he'd read uh, uh, Baudelaire, a very dangerous thing to do, clearly. And he had um, talked about, when the writing of the picture of Dorian Gray, the influence by Quisman and Baudelaire and, and others. So Wilde's actual foreignness, in terms of his own aesthetic, was in fact inspired by and directly came from his interest in, in French decadent art and poetry and fiction. But what actually happens to Wilde is that he's then retrospectively reconstructed, and this is the argument that I would make, as um, within, the, as it were, the light, the, the kind of... Um, he's read in, in terms that reflect his mother's own sort of culture and place as poet, as Republican, and as um, a figure within a, a court uh, uh, engaging against, as an Irish patriot, against... British, British justice and the British legal system. Now, George Bernard Shaw wrote a long piece about Wilde as a preface to his uh, book by Frank Harris on, on Wilde. And he centres much, much of his discussion on this idea of Shaw uh, sees Wilde, who he knew very well, they were much the same age. They knew each other in Dublin, they knew each other in London. Shaw has this theory that Speranza, Jane Wilde, suffered from a physical disorder called giantism. Now, I don't know where he gets this from, but it's Shaw's attempt through kind of a pseudoscience to try and explain uh, Wilde's own homosexuality as inherited as a psychological condition from his mother who had as an, an equivalent physical condition. So one of the things that's happening is that Wilde is being read and reread in light of Speranza, both to the good and to the... And to, to, uh, uh, both good and evil... I don't think... I, no, I didn't include a piece from Shaw. But he talks about the fact that, in fact, it's Shaw's uh, Wilde's Anglo-Irish sense of duty and honour uh, that gets him through. And this continues with many of the writers of the, of the time. There's a piece there I just took from Augusta Gregory's journals and her uh, great admiration uh, uh, for Wilde and the various stories uh, that she would have heard. So... There's a kind of a temporary period when Wilde becomes part of this kind of nationalisation. It becomes part of this idea of uh, uh, his, as she says, strange heroic story about his death, the agony, uh, thrusting his hand in his mouth to stop his cries, um, the fact that she admired the Battle of in Jail, <coughs> a, a great deal of his work, um, the anecdote from Yeats about, about Wilde being off his guard. I always think the real mistake that Wilde made in his trial was to tell Edward Carson that he was 39. He was in fact 41, which is something you never tell <coughs> someone who, like Edward Carson, had been both to 
secondary school and university with them because the one thing anyone who's been to school with you knows is your age precisely and they were the same age but in how am I doing now? I'll actually finish up then that's great so what I've done in the rest of the book is trace the ways in which Wilde appears disappears and reappears but always and often through this prism of Wilde the Irish rebel and one of the things I've suggested in the book is that whilst what Joyce saw, and indeed Yeats saw, as was um, potential for, for a kind of fusion between his sexual radicalism and his aesthetic radicalism, uh, these things disappear. That we see Wilde... Yeah. That Wilde is seen... I have two quotes here from Shane Assini... During his trials in 1895, Wilde had been magnificent in the dark and conducted himself with as much dramatic style as any Irish patriot ever did. At this distance in this particular light, there's indeed another way of seeing Oscar Wilde, as another felon in our land, another prisoner in an English jail, so that the ballad then becomes the link in the chain that includes John Mitchell's jail journal and Brendan Behan's The Queer Fellow, prison literature. This poem, written by the son of Speranza, may de de be devoid of Irish nationalist political intent, but it is full of a subversive anti-establishment sentiment. It has about it a kind of high banshee lament, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, just to finish up, what I really discover in the book, or what I argue in the book, is that while it disappears from 1922, 1924 onwards, and that his influence on many of the writers of the, of the new state O'Fallon, O'Brien, Bowen, um, Lav, and many others, is non-existent. I mean, I've, I've, uh, very few uh, of the, the writers uh, of the 20th century uh, engage with them. And those who do, or a handful who do, um, do so for various, various reasons. There are a number of exceptions, one of them being Brendan Behan. And then I argue that from Michal MacLeamore's one man showed the importance of being Oscar onwards. There is a kind of rehabilitation of Wilde in the light of his own work in uh, De Profundus. And from the 1980s onwards, Wilde becomes incorporated back into what's seen as the tradition of Irish writing and is read as a writer involved in a kind of subversion of the colonial, particularly the work that Declan Kybert has done on Wilde and the mask and self-invention. But that only really from about, uh, interestingly, with decriminalisation of 1993, has there the beginnings of a kind of a fusion of both possibilities. And the two writers that most interest me, in the, I do a final chapter called Wild in the 21st Century, is uh, the two writers that most inter interest me are Con Tobin in uh, his novel The Master, where Wilde appears as a kind of a side, an anti-self for Henry James. And then um, Jamie O'Neill's Swim Two Boys, set during 1916. Or again, there are many references to Wilde and the Wild Trials, and there's a Wildean figure, MacMurrow. That only with writers in the early 21st century is there the beginning of a kind of imaginative exploration of what Joyce suggested that Wilde represented more than just the idea of the subversion of uh, a British court or the while the Irish rebel, but that Wilde had a kind of disruptive queer potential uh, within his own writing, within his own life, and within his own work, that in fact only now 
contemporary Irish writers are beginning to suggest that kind of fusion. That always it seemed to me you could have one or the other, either Wilde the sexual outcast or Oscar the Irish rebel. And what most interests me is the ways in which imaginatively both of those potentials are now being imagined uh, by contemporary writers. Thank you very much. Thank you.